Uh, we are actually at the very end of a sermon series here at Seven Hills Fellowship on the book of Philippians. So uh, we've been going over this for, I don't know, the last 11 weeks or so, we've been covering the book of Philippians. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, the book of Philippians is called the, or it's really an epistle, it's a letter that Paul wrote, and it's called the Epistle of Joy, because it's this constant theme that comes out for Paul over and over again in Scripture, which is especially interesting because he's writing from prison, all right? So typically we don't associate somebody being in prison with joy, but amazingly Paul does. And so he's writing this letter to a church that's in a place called Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony that is largely populated by a bunch of ex-Roman military people. And so Paul, about 10 years prior to this letter, writing this letter, planted a church there in Philippi, right? And so he's really spent a lot of time with these people. He's trained up leadership. He's loved them. He's suffered with them. He's done all this stuff. And he writes this letter to encourage them, right, uh, while he's in prison. He writes this letter to encourage them while persecution is sort of on the horizon. He writes this letter to encourage them because they're going through some internal strife and struggles. And all the while, again, one of his messages is that you can be joyful. It's fantastic. Now, I'm going to very quickly throw up a couple different um, scriptures that we've read. This is a, it's a pretty famous book. And so if you, um, you know, sort of, I don't know, frequented the church in your childhood, or if you've been a lifelong churchgoer, maybe even if you have never been a church person, some of these verses might be familiar. So I'm going to read these to you. So the first one, this is from Philippians chapter one. We did this several weeks ago now, where Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is writing about there is this idea that as Christians, we have to persevere to the end. Like that's part of what we do. But more importantly than us persevering to the end is the fact that God preserves us to the end. Does that make sense? That like a good father, he carries us all the way to the finish line. Second thing we see in Philippians chapter two, we see this section of verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, Christ-like relationships are always marked by self-sacrifice. They're always marked by love of the other and seeking to do what is best for the other. And the example that Paul uses here is, look at Jesus. He was God, and yet he humbled himself and became a human being, taking the very nature of a servant in his relationship with us. That's amazing. How much more so should we take the nature of a relationship in our relationships with one another? Verse Philippians 3, chapter 3. Another chunk of verses. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, or in other words, not having a righteousness that comes from me being good or obeying the law or keeping a set of standards, but rather a righteousness that which is through faith 
in Christ. Part of what Paul has talked about from the beginning of any of his letters to the very end of all of his letters, part of what you've heard here at Seven Hills Fellowship, if you were here nine and a half years ago when we started or you were here last week, is this same message that our righteousness, the fact that God can accept us, is ultimately not anything that we bring to the table, but it's a gift that God has given to us in Jesus, and it's by faith in him that we're righteous. And so essentially what he's saying there is that it's righteousness by faith. Last week, Bob preached on another section from Philippians chapter 4. Listen to these verses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, you need to let your theology inform your psychology. Does that make sense? And so all of these verses are fantastic. I completely recommend that you pick up the book of Philippians. You find it in your Bible. And you write some of these down on note cards, keep them with you. You'll remember them for the rest of your lives, and they're actually incredibly practical. Now, in a minute, we're going to be reading our last section from the book of Philippians, and this is going to be the last sermon on this, and then we'll start with a new series next week. By the way, it's called Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. So he said a lot of those things, and so it'll be a fun series too. But let me go ahead. And uh, let me ask you to pray with me, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you very much, uh, again, for inviting each of these people into this room this morning. I thank you that though they may or may not know what their motivations were in coming this morning, Father, we know what your motivation is. And your motivation is for them uh, to have an encounter with you, the God of reality, the author of all of humanity, of science and English and math and relationships Father, we pray also that they would have an encounter with your son, Jesus, and that they would uh, turn to him for their righteousness and for their faith, that he would be their shield and their protection, that he would be their goodness and their beauty. Father, I pray that you would do this um, for your own sake and for the sake of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so obviously some of you know Tom Brady, who he is. He's a at that point in time in the interview, a three-time Super Bowl winner. Now he's a four-time Super Bowl winner. I don't know if you can see my face, but I'm making a grimace. The reason for that is I'm not necessarily a Tom Brady fan, um, but at the same time, you have to respect him, right? And so let me, let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, what he just said there was very interesting, right? I mean, he, he's a guy that has had three Super Bowls, now of course four. He's making $100 million. He's got a supermodel wife, and he's got children. He's got all the success and all the fame in the world that anybody could possibly ever want. And you heard what he said there. He said, there's got to be more than this. Isn't that interesting? That's really amazing. Because really, it's an issue of contentment. What he's saying is, is he's saying, I've got all this stuff, right? I've got stuff that people would kill for. Everybody else would say, surely, that's what life is all about. And he's saying, I'm not content, right? I'm not content. There's something missing. And the interviewer asks him, well, you know, what is it that you're missing? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. There's a a poet and philosopher that wrote back in the 8th century BC, so 2,800 years ago. His name was Horace, right? So brilliant Greek philosopher and poet. And he said this, he says, and it'll be up on the screen, he says, no one lives content, right? No one lives content. He, he was famous in his day and age. He had everything that life could desire back in his day and age. And he said, no one lives content. So no one, for those of you in the room this morning, no one, not Super Bowl winning quarterbacks, married to supermodels, not famous music, musicians, actors, politicians, housewives, or students, no one lives content. 
All right? All right, let's go. Time, time to go home, everybody. Just kidding. There is a, uh, a musician back in the 40s named Peggy Lee. I'm going to put a picture of her up here. And um, so she's back in the 40s, very famous at that point in time. I'm not going to ask you, Bob, if you ever went to a concert of hers or not, but Bob's our <laughs> assistant pastor. I don't know. I, I, the math. I couldn't do the math that quickly. Anyway, so Peggy Lee back in the 40s sang a song called, Is This All There Is? And so the, the, uh, the words are a little campy in some respects, although the, the music is actually incredibly serious. But listen to the words of what she says. She says, when I was 12 years old, my father took me to a circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And so I sat there watching the marvelous spectacle. I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? And in 1940, that's about as good as it got. Then the next thing, she says this, then I fell in love, head over heels in love, with the most wonderful boy in the world. We would take long walks by the river, just sit hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. Then one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? The chorus is this. It says, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. In other words, she had, again, everything. She had fame. She had fortune. She had love, right? She had a circus. She had all these things, and she was not content, right? No one lives content. John Steinbeck, um, the author of uh, Mice and Men, Grapes of Wrath, East and Eden, won Nobel Prize for his um, authorship. He said this. He said, there's a capacity for appetite that a whole heaven and earth can't satisfy. Read it again. There's a capacity for appetite that each of you has, that I have, that every man and woman has. There's this capacity for appetite that is infinite, that a whole heaven and earth of cake can't satisfy. Does that make sense? And so this idea of contentment, which is what we're getting at here as we talk about Tom Brady and Peggy Lee and Horace and uh, and even Steinbeck here, this idea of contentment is always related to desire, right? It's always related to, the, to desire, and essentially, essentially what's happening here is these people who have had all of their earthly desires met, they've experienced great success, they've experienced fame, right? They, uh, they have had money, and they've had personal achievement, they've had all the love in the world, and what they realize, every single one of them realize, is that all of those earthly things can't come close to fulfilling the true and legitimate desire of the human heart. In other words, there's a hole in your heart that is infinite, right? And all those wonderful, great, and frankly legitimate things that we pour in there day after day after day are simply finite, and so they hit the bottom, and there's still an infinite amount of room in our hearts. So the question is, what do you do with your desire, right? Because I, I'm here to tell you this morning, I think those desires are real, right? I, I want to affirm your desire to experience love. I want to affirm your desire to experience success, I want to affirm your desire to have people look at you and think you're great. I want to affirm your desire to accomplish great things. I want to affirm your desire to be a great mother or a great father or a great doctor or a great school teacher. I want to affirm all of those desires. But the reality is when you get to a point where you realize that that's all there is and it doesn't fill you up anymore like Tom Brady or like Peggy Lee, what do you do with that desire? And there are really two main answers the first answer is you, you have a tendency to get to a point in life where you suppress it, right? 
In other words, you basically say that that desire that I have for relationship or that desire that I have for success is so painful that I've simply got to suppress it. I've got to push it down so that it doesn't keep hurting me anymore, right? And so people suppress those desires in all sorts of ways. They can suppress the desires through drugs and alcohol, right? They can suppress those desires by saying, I'm not ever going to put myself in a relationship with somebody else because it hurts too bad when they inevitably let me down. And they suppress those desires. But what ends up happening when you suppress your desires, you actually become less human, right? You become less than human. And not only do you become less than human, but you become kind of bitter. And not only do you become bitter, but you have a tendency to look at other people who still have hopes and still have desires, and you look down on them and you judge them, right? And they know it. They feel it from you. And so in suppressing your desire, you actually make yourself into a, a monster, right? You're less human. And the other thing that we do with our desires is we basically say, I'm going to pursue my desires with every ounce of energy and every ounce of ambition that I possibly could have. And so what some people do in order to achieve those desires is they trade one job for another, and then they trade that job for another job because that job didn't fulfill them. Or or maybe what they do is they trade this friendship for that friendship, and then another friendship, and another one, right? Or maybe they trade this experience for that experience over and over again, but eventually what ends up happening is they find that none of those experiences, none of those jobs fulfill them. Part of what many of you have experienced here is maybe you've had a parent, right? Maybe you had a parent that said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to pursue my desire to be fulfilled. And so your parent traded in maybe your mom for a new woman, right? Or maybe your mom traded in your dad for somebody else. And then maybe that same parent went on to trade that second wife or second husband for another And what you realize is that when you pursue desire with reckless abandon, when you take it all in your own hands and say, I'm going to get the things I desire, that what happens is, is that you look in your wake and you see a trail of wreckage and destruction, right? Maybe some of you are in that trail of wreckage and destruction with a parent or a friend or someone who pursued their happiness above all else. They pursue their desires. The point is, suppressing your desire makes you less human, But chasing your desire and seeking after it at all costs makes you a monster just as much. So what do you do with your desire? What do you do with this idea of contentment? Let's see very quickly what the Apostle Paul has to say in Philippians 4, uh, verses 11 through 13 and 9 through 23. He says this, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's in jail. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Part of what Paul's saying is there, by the way, I got to share the gospel with some people in Caesar's household, and they're now Christians. And then verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Amen. So here Paul addresses this idea of contentment from jail, right, where he's been wrongfully imprisoned. What does he have to say in this passage? We're going to look at three things. The first is this, is that contentment, right, or, or, or handling our desires appropriately that contentment is not our default setting. Look at verses 11 and 12. They say this, 
For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content. Now, let me tell you this. We are not naturally content creatures, right? That point has been clearly made in all these illustrations so far. What we are is we are creatures that naturally desire and yearn and pine for these things that will fulfill those desires. But again, contentment is not our default setting, right? Contentment is not natural. According to Paul, he's basically saying it's, it's something that's a process. It's something that's learned, okay? So let me call time out here really quickly, and let me turn your eyes to the screen and show you a picture of something that is also not learned. So I was, um, I t- I'm so glad you're laughing at that, because I was in Starbucks when I found that picture, and I was in the corner giggling to myself. And I'm sure somebody thought, that dude is crazy. Anyway, but yeah, monkey riding a dog does not happen naturally, right? That is something that has to, they've got to be trained to do that. There, there's not like the, some random Indian monkey somewhere that has like these pets of herd dogs or whatever. That, is, that doesn't happen naturally. Okay, next slide. Okay. I also giggled at that one too. Again, it's crazy. I just, people, anyway, whatever. Anyway, there, there are no squirrels in Australia that naturally create skis out of, you know, acorn husks and then ride to the back of a turtle or otter. And that doesn't happen, right? You, gotta be, you have to be trained to do this. This does not happen naturally, right? Okay, I think that was kind of funny. Anyway, so point is, the point is this. The point is this, that uh, contentment isn't natural, right? Contentment isn't just going to happen to you. Contentment is something that you've got to learn. Contentment is something that you're going to be, have to be patient and you're going to have to wait for. And so this is a very quick little discussion of this point this morning. But essentially what I'm saying is don't for a moment assume that contentment is going to happen without effort. Right? And, and actually don't, don't expect contentment to occur without pain because it's also going to come with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of unmet desires, right? And, and, and really assume that contentment, like anything that's worthwhile, playing the violin, learning to juggle a soccer ball, uh, cooking a Thanksgiving turkey, speaking Spanish, whatever the case is, anything that's worthwhile is going to require effort on your part. That's the first thing that Paul talks about here. So just understand this idea of contentment. It's not going to happen quickly, and it's not going to happen without pain, right? Contentment is much more like a water skiing squirrel. Okay. Number two, contentment transcends our situation in life. We're going to look at those same verses we just read a minute ago, where Paul says this, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, right? So Socrates, you guys have heard of him before. He addressed this idea of contentment with his students, and here's what Socrates had to say. He said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Let me read that one more time. He says this, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. In other words, what Paul has learned and what Socrates is commenting on here is that contentment is an internal reality, not an external reality. Or or in other words, another way of saying it is that contentment isn't just glad for whether it's got a little bit or a lot, contentment is satisfied apart from either of those things. That contentment is tied to something that is transcendent as opposed to tie, being tied to something that is imminent. Imminent means it's something close. You can feel, you can see, you can touch. Transcendent means that it's something far away. And part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying that my ability to be content is precisely because it's not located in something that is in the here and the now. The ground of contentment or the grounds for contentment are always found somewhere else transcendent all 
together. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever sung uh, what we used to call Negro spirituals. I don't know how familiar you are with these songs, but they're amazing. They're powerful. Uh, Earlier this summer, um, my family and I went to the Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, which is part of where the Underground Railroad used to pass through, and it's this great museum um, that chronicles um, the history of slavery and freedom for the African-Americans who were enslaved. And one of the things that you experienced as you walked all throughout this museum is there were, there were these spirituals um, written on the walls, and they were playing over the loudspeakers. And part of the reason they were being played is because within these spirituals, spirituals there was always a message of hope. There was always even a message of contentment. Listen to one of these spirituals called His Eye is on the sparrow. Listen to the words. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. Guess what? These people were not free, right? They were in slavery when they were writing these songs. How can you write that? For his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Why should my heart be lonely and long for a heavenly home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. What makes these Negro spirituals so powerful is that their hope, their joy, and their contentment is precisely because it's amidst these struggles that are part of their daily reality, part of their daily context, that frankly nobody in this room has any idea about how bad they were. Probably nobody in this room has come close to suffering like these people suffered, and yet They could have contentment, they could have hope, they could have joy, right? And so some of you in this room have experienced contentment, right, in spite of your circumstances. Again, I don't want to go into the list of sufferings that might lead to this, but some of you have experienced suffering and pain in your life that's so great, and yet you can say, I don't know how I can say this, but I'm content somehow, right? Others of you, when we talk about this idea of contentment, think that sounds ridiculous, It sounds childish, it sounds immature, it sounds avoidant, right? It sounds like you're psychologically unhealthy if you think you can be content when there's so much suffering around you. But again, this transcendent contentment is possible, right? It's possible for you, it's possible for me. People actually can learn to be content, but it isn't contentment in your surroundings. It's not contentment in the imminent. It's always contentment in something that's transcendent, right? That's what... Paul's been writing this whole letter about. It's his imminent reality was that he was in jail. He had been wrongfully accused, right? He had been shipwrecked. He had all sorts of horrible stuff happen, and yet he's saying, I'm content because his contentment isn't found in the here and now. It's found somewhere else altogether. Second or third point we're going to look at is this. Contentment, this idea of contentment. Contentment is ultimately the result of God's generosity to us. So it's the result of God's generosity to us. So verse 13 says this, and by the way, if you're familiar with this verse, it is the most misquoted, taken out of context verse in the entire Bible. It just is. So if you've got it on a t-shirt for your football team or for your weightlifting t-shirt or whatever, just know that that's not what it really means. But I'll tell you what it does mean. Anyway, it's taken out of context, and, uh, and, and, and here's how it's taken out of context. You read that. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Look at this picture we're going to look at. I've got a pair of shorts, boxing shorts up here. These are the, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Evander Holyfield, but Evander Holyfield won the heavyweight championship. He was a boxer, you know, multiple times. Uh, when I was in seminary, 
Evander Holyfield fought Mike Tyson when Mike Tyson was sort of the ultimate bad guy. He was at the height of his powers. And everybody, you know, when they, this, leading up to this fight, literally thought that Mike Tyson was just going to knock Evander Holyfield's head off and it was going to roll into the crowd. I mean, just, it, they, it was just a matter of time. And so, in fact, I watched this with a bunch of seminary buddies, and, uh, and we were talking about, you know, what round Evander Holyfield was going to get knocked out in. Like, there's no question. And it was interesting because we're in seminary, right? At this time, Mike Tyson has become a Muslim. And, uh, and, and so Evander Holyfield comes out with Philippians 4.13 on his shorts and on his robe. And all of a sudden, we're like, you know, we got to pull for Evander. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, this is... Anyway. And uh, so, for any of you who know the fight, the fight goes on. And Evander Holyfield makes it for the first round, second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round. And then he knocked Mike Tyson out. And we just went nuts, right? And all of a sudden, even though I was in seminary and I knew that verse was taken out of context, I was like, yeah. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. <laughs> the problem is, like eight months later, Evander Holyfield got knocked out by Lennox Lewis. And they're like, whoa, hold on, you know. Because what it, what it doesn't mean is I can leap over mountains or I can dunk if I'm five foot eight or whatever. What it means is, is that Paul's saying, is I can be content in all these circumstances because of Christ who gives me strength. Tim Tebow, next slide. You know, Tim Tebow used to put Philippians 4.13 under his eyes. I'm a Tim Tebow fan. I hope he makes the Eagles. I'd love to see him do well. Um, and I love that verse, but again, it's, it's being used out of context. Again, it's not talking about being able to do anything. It's talking about being able to be content in, in circumstances and situations that seem like it would be impossible to be content in, okay? So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I know this sounds crazy to you, and it probably even sounds impossible, and it would be impossible if it was just up to you, but it's not. Your ability to be content in all circumstances is ultimately because it's something that God gives you. What Paul is saying here is that his ability to be content comes from God who gives him strength. In other words, it comes from outside himself. So for three and a half years, I very seldom talk about this because it's kind of embarrassing, but for three and a half years, I was a vegetarian, not philosophically a vegetarian, just there's lots of heart disease in my family, whatever. I was, thought I'd try it. Anyway, and so for three and a half years, I lived off of like 1,300 calories a day, no protein, and I literally had zero energy, no energy whatsoever. So I had really low B12. So finally, I went to the doctor, you know, got all the blood work done, and basically I had super low B12. That's where energy comes from. And the problem is, is that energy, B12, only comes from living creatures. It only comes from milk or eggs or animal products, right? It's the only way you can get it. And so the summer of this, you know, year 3.5, we were down at Sanibel Island down in South Florida on vacation, and I just had gotten to the point where I was sick and tired of being exhausted constantly. And so I said, you know what? I'm out. I'm done with this. And so my first meal after three and a half years of vegetarianism was two Frankfurters, two boar's head hot dogs. I read this somewhere. They said, that's the best thing to start back with. <laughs> In private later, I'll tell you that that's not the best way to start back. Anyway, but point is, man... As soon as I started eating meat again, within literally four or five days, I had more energy than I'd had for those three and a half years, right? I, I didn't have the energy in and of myself. My body couldn't just whip it up out of thin air. The energy that I needed, right, to live a life, to be able to walk upstairs, to be able to play soccer, to be able to wrestle with my kids, was going to ultimately come because of something's generosity to me, because something gave up its life in order that I might live, right? So some of you in this room this morning are listening to this, right? And I would say that not some of you, all of you struggle with discontent, right? All of you struggle 
with discontent maybe with a boyfriend, maybe with a wife, maybe your discontent is with your job or your major, maybe you're not content with your, with your body or where God has placed you in life, right? And I simultaneously want to affirm the desire that you have and the desires that you have for these things that are good and right things. In fact, not only do I want to affirm those desires, I want to, I want to stoke the fire of your desires. I want to help you understand your desires more because those are God-given desires. It's how he made you. It's how he made us as human beings. We desire relationship. We desire intimacy. We desire food. We desire rest. Those are all good things. I don't want to ever diminish your desire. It's not what I'm here to do. I want to affirm it. On the other hand, I also want to know, you to know that God does offer you contentment. And it would be very easy right now, as I say that, that God offers you contentment. It would be easy to draw from elsewhere in the Bible and recommend the reasons why you should be content. I could tell you, hey, God has adopted you to be his daughter, or he's adopted you as his son, so you should be content. Like I could say, hey, God's forgiven your sins, therefore be content. I could tell you what Romans 8.28 says, that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I could tell you those things, and I could say, because of that, be content, right? I could say he's the author of creation, and he promises to be with you. We sang some songs about that this morning. I could tell you all those things, but what's interesting is they're not what Paul says here. They're true, actually. They are part of contentment, but it's not what he says here. I could say all those things, but let me simply say what the text says, because that's kind of what I'm here to do. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. And here's what Paul says. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay? In other words, the secret of contentment is that God is the one who can give you the strength to be content, to be joyful, to be at peace, to have hope, even in the midst of amazing pain and unfathomable suffering and rejection. Right? That, that's the answer is that God can actually give you that strength. He offers you that strength, but you can't whip it up on your own. I've got a good friend who uses this illustration. He basically says that, uh, that, that essentially our Christian lives and us as spiritual beings, that we're, we're like an, an old ship, right? And, uh, and we're like an old ship that maybe has a sail. And so the way that these old ships work is that uh, the only way that they can move from point A to point B is either you row it, which in this case we're talking about sailboats, but ultimately, the only way these ships can move forward is if you raise the sails so that the wind, which is this power that is supplied from without you, can blow into those sails and move you. And that's exactly what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, is that you can raise the sails, right? You can, you can go to church and you can sing hymns, right? You can, you can hear a, a sermon. Uh, you can interact with other believers. That's great. That's a, a, a way of raising a sail. You can read your Bible. You can pray on your own. You can do all these things. Those are ways in which you raise the sail, but you need to understand that the wind is what only God can provide. It is through his strength that you can do all of these things. All you can do is raise the sails and wait. Now, this morning, we have a great opportunity for you to experience waiting on the Lord and receiving from him we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, or communion, depending on what you call it. On tables um, to my right over here, down here we have wine. At all the other tables we have grape juice. But at these tables we have bread and we have wine, and uh, they symbolize something meaningful. And uh, let, me, let me tell you what they symbolize very quickly. Jesus in John chapter 6 is talking to this horde of people, uh, all of whom have said they believe in him and want to follow him. And he tells them something that is very interesting. He says this, he says, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. He's referring to an Old Testament story. 
but is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Does that make sense? What Jesus is saying is your strength to persevere, your satisfaction, right, comes from me, the bread of heaven. What is offered to those of you who trust in Jesus alone for your salvation today is that sustenance in Jesus. What comes to you today is knowing that Jesus has done everything that is required for you to be able to stand before God and be declared righteous, right? No matter how bad you have been, no matter what you have done, your sin is a flea bite in comparison with the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm going to read the, Lord, the words of the Lord's Supper in a moment. And I'm going to ask you to simply take your time, pray, think, reflect, and, and then when you're ready to stand up and receive the Lord's Supper. Paul also says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, satisfaction and sustenance, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for what you have offered to us in your son Jesus, that you have offered us um, satisfaction, that, uh, that we can be content because we trust in your son Jesus, because we have him, because you have strengthened us in him. Father, I pray that not only can we have satisfaction But I thank you that we can have power, and we can also have power because of this bread, um, the bread of heaven that you offer us even this morning through this meal. Father, I pray that our power and our satisfaction would not ever, that we would not ever confuse um, and somehow think that it comes from within us, but I pray that for our contentment, that for our strength, uh, for our satisfaction, we would always look to you uh, who gives us that strength through your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray all of these things today. Amen.